Welcome to St. Louis on the Air. I'm Don Marsh. On April 15th, one of the most successful exhibitions ever at the Missouri History Museum will close. Number one in civil rights, the African-American freedom struggle in St. Louis ends its 13-month run. By then, a quarter million people will have seen it. It's going out with a bang, a week-long series of related events counting down the exhibition's final days. Today, we're talking about the exhibition and those other events with Gwen Moore, Curator of Urban Landscape and Community Identity for the Missouri Historical Society, and she joins me in studio. Gwen, so nice to see you again. Well, thank you so much for having me. What does the enormous popularity of this exhibition tell us? Well, I think it tells us that people are really interested in St. Louis history uh, and that they will turn out when you present that history to them, mm-hmm. and I think that uh, we've done that in a very appealing way. Is there most, a, a most important event in that long history? Wow, there's so many, and yeah. I think that's what we wanted to uh, emphasize, that there are a lot of events. Uh, we really pay a lot of homage to Judge Nathan B. Young, who was a uh, founder of the St. Louis American Newspaper and, of course, did a lot of this pioneering research uh, on St. Louis uh, African-American history. And one of the things that he said, and he made this claim, that's why he said we were number one in civil rights, and that's where the title of the exhibit comes from, because he says we had more civil rights cases go to the Supreme Court than any other city in the nation. So that's where we start, uh, basically. That's our jumping-off point, focusing on those uh, civil rights cases that had such a national impact. Well, of course, the Dred Scott case would have been the, Dred, the first and the foremost The Dred Scott case was the first one in 1857, <clears throat> but he also discusses uh, the 1938 uh, Gaines versus Canada case in which Lloyd Gaines sued the University of Missouri because they would not admit him to the uh, University of Missouri Law School. Uh, then there was the 1948 Shelley versus Kramer case, which is called the Restrictive Covenant cases, which, of course, ended basically ended restrictive covenants across the nation. Mm-hmm. And that final case was 1968, uh, which was the uh, Jones versus Meyer case mm-hmm. in which uh, uh, there were racial restrictions in housing. Um, so those were the four cases that he focused on. Oh, that last one was the one that Frankie Freeman was involved in. Well, I Frankie suspect. Freeman was, uh, <clears throat> was involved in the uh, Davis versus the St. Louis Housing oh, Authority, oh, that's right. uh, and that did not necessarily go to the Supreme Court. It went to, the, I think, mm-hmm. the Eighth Circuit Court of Appeals, and that was uh, 55, yeah. 1955. The, the Gaines case is, is particularly interesting and less well-known, I think, than many, but there's, a, there's an air of mystery around the whole yes, Gaines story. and that's because Lloyd Gaines. Lloyd Gaines was an undergraduate from Vashon High School. Uh, went to Lincoln University, very, very smart young man, and he wanted to go to the University of Missouri Law School. At that time, the University of Missouri did not admit African Americans, and they had a fund that uh, they would pay for you to go to a school outside of Missouri mm. that would accept blacks. Mm. But that fund was very limited. I think it was something like $10,000, and they had more people uh, applying for those funds. So a lot of blacks just didn't get a chance to mm. go to university. Um, so he sued. Um, of course, he had the support of the national NAACP. Um, I always say he had a legal dream team. He had uh, Thurgood Marshall, Charles Hamilton Houston, of course, and he had the local lawyers here, um, Sidney Redman, Henry Espy, Robert Witherspoon, and they sued the University of Missouri, and, of course, it went all the way to the Supreme Court. They won, and, of course, the Supreme Court said either you admit Lloyd Gaines or establish a separate law school for him, which they did establish a separate law school for him. The Lincoln University Law School, which was located here in St. Louis. Mm-hmm. And, of course, the mystery that you're talking about is that Lloyd Gaines disappeared. And to this day, 
we don't know what happened to Lloyd Gaines. And I always say we can speculate, but we really don't know. Well, let's let's speculate for a moment. <laughs> why, why not? I, I suppose the speculation centers primarily on the fact that he, you know, had created this this storm of controversy. He was somehow associated with all of uh, what you've just talked about. Yeah, uh, the, the the story goes he was at the Alpha House in in Chicago, and he had gone out to buy stamps, and that's the last that anyone ever heard mm-hmm. from him. And like I say, we can speculate. Uh, Judge Young, for instance, who uh, thought that maybe uh, he had been paid off and uh, was uh, sent down to Mexico, which is, mm. sounds a little far-fetched to me. But, yeah. you know, Judge Young knew uh, Lloyd Gaines, uh, and he thought that this might have been possible. Um, I, but nobody ever heard from him. His family never heard from him. Mm. Uh, so uh, that sort of makes that theory a little untenable because mm. you would think that if yeah. he had – was somewhere else. Uh, so some people think that maybe he was, and like I said, speculation sure. uh, done sure. away with, but we don't know. Sort of a we Jimmy really Hoffa kind of yeah, uh, situation. Yeah, I always say it's one of the oldest cold cases in U.S. history because yeah. it's never been solved. You know, another element to this history that uh, I like to point uh, to from time to time is the fact that uh, many many of the gains that were um, affected through the legal process mm-hmm. We're with the help of white people, and I think mm-hmm. that's not always acknowledged. I mean, going back to Dred Scott, I mean, certainly there of were course. a lot of white involvement of in that. And Shelley versus Kramer, as I recall that story, when they were establishing the case, some of his white, uh, some of his Shelley's white friends were in the bank creating a disturbance so they could get a hold mm-hmm. of the deed. Mm-hmm. That was a part of the story. And of course, it was a, a <clears throat> white woman who uh, bought the the house, uh, the straw yeah. party, uh, and then turned the. It over to to the Shelley. So, yeah. In fact, Judge Young says the very first demonstration, he calls it the first civil rights demonstration on mm-hmm. the continent, was in 1819, and he said it was free blacks yeah. and their white friends yeah. who were demonstrating on the steps of the old courthouse. I, I think that's important to acknowledge too, because oh. uh, you, you know that that is a part of the Percy Green when he climbed the arch got all the publicity, but he was accompanied by a white climber, James Daly. Yeah, right. Yeah, yeah. yeah it was the two of them, and of course when he unmasked the Veil Prophet. He had to rely yeah. on two white yeah. women to do that because they could get into the, the Veil Prophet ball. Yeah. So, yeah. So at a time when, when we talk a lot about polarization in the city of St. Louis, it's, it's important to consider that there is, there is some nice, nice examples of the yeah. opposite. Yeah, well, I think that's some, one of the things <clears throat> that, that we point out in, in this exhibit. And I always like to uh, quote uh, David Grant, who was an uh, NAACP attorney, a civil rights attorney, and he's talking about the East St. Louis Waste Ride. And he mm-hmm. talked about how St. Louis became a welcoming place for African Americans that were escaping mm-hmm. the massacre in East St. Louis. And he said it was a wonderful thing, this racial thing here in St. Mm-hmm. Louis. And I always like to point that out because I yeah. say that's not the way people think of St. Louis, especially we're talking about 1917, right. yeah. a welcoming place for yeah. blacks. Well, that, that's why I wanted to bring that up. Yes. I'm glad you mentioned David Grant. And I know his daughter, Melissa Grant, is going to be in town she for is. one of the events. She she's, absolutely is. She's been on this program a couple of times, and she's a wonderful lady. And uh, I didn't realize that I knew David Grant because he was the parliamentarian for the Board of Aldermen. Yes. And when I came to St. Louis, there he was. You know, he was just sitting off in a corner. And I wish I had known his history. At that time, I would have 
talk to him more and, and about that. It's yeah. a wonderful history. Yeah, he's one of the, he was one of the leading civil rights attorneys here in St. Louis. Yeah. He was involved in so many of these civil rights cases. Uh, he was the uh, uh, represented the the colored clerk circle in the 1930s, mm-hmm. which was this early civil yeah. rights group protesting uh, uh, employment discrimination in St. Louis. He was a counsel for the Citizen Civil Rights Committee, which was this group of black and white women that were protesting segregated eating facilities mm-hmm. in the downtown department stores. He was one of the leaders of the March on Washington movement in 1942. With I mean, Philip Randolph, right? With yes, yes. Yeah, I mean, he was just involved in every civil rights uh, activity that was going on in St. Louis. Very important civil rights attorney. His, his daughter tells the story and has written about it, and there are two books on the subject of his association with Cab Calloway, number mm-hmm. one, who many people of a certain age would remember as a fine, fine entertainer. Absolutely. I think he was sporting life in Porgy and Bess on, on yes. Broadway, if I'm not mistaken. Yes. And also Josephine Baker. And Lena Horne. And Lena Horne. <laughs> right, right. <laughs> None of whom could come to St. Louis and stay in a hotel. Exactly. So a lot of times they did have to stay in private homes mm. because there were no hotels that would accept them. Yeah. I think, if I remember correctly, that Cab Calloway is Melissa Grant's godfather. Yes, uh-huh. yes, and she's going to be doing a book signing here. Yeah. So that and and it, it, the book that she wrote, which is at the elbows of my elders, yeah. is an, it just it's just an extraordinary book. And she's going to be giving a lecture, mm-hmm. and she's going to be doing a book signing. So I would really urge people to uh, really come out and see her. That was one of my major reference works when I was working on this exhibit. That's part of the week-long, the final week-long. It is. Well, let's talk a little bit about that uh, before we have to take a break, about some of the things aside from uh, Melissa Grant's activities. Yeah, well... well, first of all, the, the museum will be open that final week until 8 o'clock, which usually mm-hmm. we close at 5, except on Tuesday. Mm-hmm. So people will have an opportunity uh, to come in and see some of these great events. We're going to start off on, on that Sunday with uh, Reverend Tracy Blackman, who is an activist in her mm-hmm. own right, talking about civil rights in the church and the involvement of religious leaders, which, of course, uh, that was very, very important in the civil rights movement, that ministers did play a pivotal role. And it's also she's going to have the the Christ King Church uh, Christ Choir, which is going wow. to be performing as well. So that's going to be quite an event that we're looking forward to. Uh, we're going to be talking about mu- music and racial segregation in the 20th century. That's another um, uh, program that we're going to have, Songs of the Civil Rights Movement. I think we did that back in July, and it was like a standing room only crowd. Mm-hmm. So we're going to repeat that. So that's going to be really exciting. Of course, I mentioned... Uh, uh, Gail Melissa, Melissa Grant. Yeah, absolutely yep. amazing uh, writer and speaker. And uh, we're going to have the artists and, uh, that were involved. We, one of the things that we did is that we commissioned um, local African-American artists uh, to, pr- to, to do original works mm-hmm. of art to illustrate the St. Louis Civil Rights Movement. So and those were four artists. I'll we'll mention their names. William Burton, Robert Ketchins, Dale and Darnell Chambers, brother and sister always mm-hmm. say, not husband and wife. <laughs> And there's also going to be the activists who are our actors who are actually portraying uh, uh, members uh, of, that were active in the civil rights movement. Uh, so that's going to be combined those artists and those activists into a, um, a day-long program. So that's well, going to be pretty exciting. Yeah, that's going to be quite a week. Mm-hmm. What, what are some of the activists they'll be portraying? Well, David Grant is one. Uh-huh, uh-huh. <laughs> um, George Vaughn, who argued the Shelley versus Kramer case. Uh-huh. Charlton Tandy, who's uh, given credit for actually uh, integrating uh, public transportation in St. Louis, which was in the late 19th, early 20th century when that happened. 
Lucy Delaney, who was uh, sued for her freedom in Mm -hmm. 1844. Margaret Bush Wilson, noted civil rights attorney. Mm -hmm. And there's also a woman named Katherine Johnson who was sent here by the national NAACP in 1916 because there was this racial segregation, this residential segregation uh, um, initiative going on in the city of St. Louis, and she was sent here to fight that, to make sure it didn't happen. An awful lot has been going on for a long time in this city yes. that, that most people don't know about. I mean, that history until, uh, of course, this exhibition at the museum, uh, people didn't know about it. I, I think that's it's largely an untold story, and I think that's why the History Museum and the Missouri Historical Society wanted to do this, this exhibition, because there was a, a a feeling that we didn't have a civil rights history or we didn't have much of a civil rights history. And, of course, we knew that it was not only a long history, a very rich history, uh, one that had a national impact, and we wanted to tell that story. We have to take a break. We'll do that now. We're talking with Gwen Moore of the Missouri Historical Society, and we're talking specifically about the exhibition at the History Museum that is winding down. April 15th is the last day, and there are a number of events that will be taking place in the week preceding the the final day of the uh, exhibition. Back with Gwen Moore in just a moment. This is St. Louis on the Air on St. Louis Public Radio, 90.7 KWMU. And welcome back as we continue our conversation with Gwen Moore of the Missouri Historical Society. Gwen, uh, uh, number one in civil rights, obviously, is is the title of this exhibition. Mm -hmm. How does it happen, do you think, that that this part of the country plays such an important role? I mean, there were... There was activity all over the yeah, country. Yeah, there was activity all over the country. And, you know, I, I, I think when I, I, I give a tour of this exhibit, I, I tell people, well, you've you got to remember St. Louis used to be a big city. And, of course, somebody yeah. corrected me and said, well, St. Louis is still a big city. Uh-huh. Well, but it used to be a, a big city. Sure. So what happened here yeah. had national significance. Mm-hmm. And I think sometimes we forget that because St. Louis is not – no longer in those top 20 cities anymore. It used to be number four. Mm -hmm. Uh, And so it attracted a lot of attention, just like what happens in Chicago and New York and San Francisco and Los Angeles attracts attention today. What what generally was the demographic breakdown, do you think, uh, from from Dred Scott through the East St. Louis riots and through the 30s? Well, it's really interesting because when I was doing research on the uh, residential segregation ordinance at that time, we were talking about 1916, Mm Uh, so and the, the the black population of St. Louis was on, only about seven percent. Mm-hmm. I said, but that's really really quite odd because mm-hmm. why would the white population feel threatened by such yeah. a small percentage of African Americans mm-hmm. uh, living in the city? But I, I think that that uh, goes to show you the kind of um, uh, 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 fear and dread uh, that uh, some whites had about the. The migration. We were talking about uh, the black migration when blacks were moving from mm-hmm. the south and to the north and to urban areas. In fact, I think it's really interesting that the, the, the language that they use, they often refer, refer to blacks as invading. Yeah. Uh, so that's, that sounds pretty ominous. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Well, you know, I think to the uh, East St. Louis riots of ni- 1917, the issue there was jobs. I mean, the migration was underway and yes. a lot of jobs were threatened, or at least people thought they were yeah, threatened. Yeah, people thought that, that they were threatened. <clears throat> and a lot of historians are beginning to reexamine 
the causes of the East St. Louis race riot. I think it was uh, uh, August Meyer who wrote the first uh, study of the East St. Louis uh, race riot. And a lot of historians want to call it a massacre rather than a riot. Um, and he was the one that first posited that theory, or that, that explanation mm-hmm. that it had to do with labor conflicts. Um, you know, blacks were being brought up. Whites thought that they were being replaced by black workers. Sure. Uh, other historians are looking even deeper into that. Um, uh, a historian by the name of Lumpkins has written a book in which he sees some sort of political uh, power, growing mm-hmm. political power of, of blacks that was, that was threatening yeah. the white power structure. So it's, it's complex. There were a lot of issues involved. Mm-hmm. Thinking of the, of the uh, East St. Louis riots, uh, many people probably don't realize how, how widely reported that was. There were marches in New York City. Absolutely. I mean, I always say that it was the worst, and I always like to tell people that when we say race riot in this particular period of time, mm-hmm. uh, what a race riot was, was whites attacking blacks. That's what a race mm-hmm. riot was. It wasn't uh, about blacks uh, violently resisting their oppression. It was about whites attacking blacks. And that was the worst race riot up to that time. Uh, mm-hmm. So it did attract a lot of national attention. Of course, the NAACP had that silent march in New York and Harlem, 10,000 people protesting the fact that this, this massacre was going on in East St. Louis. It was a national story, an international story, by the way. Mm-hmm. Did it change anything? You know, it, it, there was a lot of pressure uh, put on government. I mean, you know, there was a, a, a whole delegation of blacks who tried to meet with Woodrow Wilson at the White House. And I always like to point out the fact that Elsie mm-hmm. Dyer introduced the first anti-lynching bill. Elsie Dyer was a congressman that represented the 12th congressional district here in St. Louis, which was a black district. Mm-hmm. He had a black constituency. And he introduced the first anti-lynching law to actually pass Congress in 1922. And he said he was so outraged by what had happened in East St. Louis. That's what motivated him to uh, to, to really write that mm-hmm. legislation. And he was able to get it passed. It just like but by the time it got to uh, the, the Senate, of course, it was filibustered to death. Mm-hmm. But he kept introducing and reintroducing that anti-lynching law the whole time he was in Congress. And it was resurrected, of course, during the 40s by Costigan mm-hmm. and Wagner, and it didn't pass. In fact, I think the last anti-lynching bill was uh, 1968, and that never passed. So we never got an anti-lynching bill that actually passed. And it was usually due to Southern resistance. You'd have to wonder if it had passed and gone to President Wilson's desk whether he would have signed it because his <sighs> racial attitude is yeah. more than suspect. Yes, he, he was a Southerner, and yeah. uh, he was not very popular with African Americans yeah. or progressive whites. Uh, <laughs> yeah. And there is a movement, I think, even today at his Princeton University to kind of disassociate itself uh, from, yes, from him. Yes, there is. A, but I, I think that they're kind of moving away from that. Yeah. I mean, he was such a presence at Princeton. Let's talk a little bit about more recent times. Okay. And, you know, I suspect that a lot of people wonder why there wasn't more activity in St. Louis in the 60s of the, of the, the demonstrations that uh, were so popular in other, other parts of the country. Well, you know, I'm, I'm not so sure if that's the case. Uh, I, I know that uh, one of the, the things we talk about in the exhibit is the 1968 uh, Martin Luther King March. 
And a lot of people point to that particular time in history, and they were saying, well, you know, when Martin Luther King was assassinated, there were riots all over the country. Mm -hmm. Uh, We did not have a riot here. I know. And and so it's like, well, why? Why didn't we have a riot? Does that Mm -hmm. mean that that blacks were passive? And I, I don't think so. We did have a massive march, and I like to give a lot of credit to people like Norman Say and Bill Bailey. As mm-hmm. uh, soon as they got wind, as soon as they heard that Martin Luther King had been assassinated, they got on the phone. They called everybody, everybody they could think of. They called. Uh, they wanted to have a, 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 a way for African Americans and, of course, any progressive whites, whites, period, to express their frustration, their grief, their anger, about the assassination of Martin Luther King, but they wanted it done in a nonviolent manner, something that would honor the life and legacy of Martin Luther King, which, of course, his whole life and legacy was nonviolence. And they organized this massive march, uh, and they expected, and they had two days to do this. And, of course, they included everybody. They included religious leaders, political leaders, um, uh, the so-called militants, the moderates, the conservatives, mm-hmm. everybody they invited uh, to take part in this because they wanted a unified response to this assassination, to this terrible tragedy. Mm-hmm. Uh, and on the day uh, they ex- of, the, of the march, which was two days after Martin Luther King's assassination, they expected that they would get 20,000 people. They were hoping for 20,000 people, and between forty and 50,000 people showed up for that march that started at the Arch and ended at the cricket field in uh, Forest Park. So that was, that was quite, quite a trek, hmm. and there was no violence. It was nonviolence, and they felt that they had accomplished what they set out to do. Yeah. Quite different. I, in 1968, I was in Baltimore, and the Baltimore riots that followed the uh, King assassination were— were significant. 5,000 National Guards mm-hmm. uh, men called and six people killed. Lots of lots of property mm-hmm. destruction. It was an awful thing to experience. Um, we have a caller here who wants to get into this conversation. Let's bring in Chris, uh, calling from the Shaw neighborhood. Chris, what's on your mind? Well, I had always wondered if uh, Missouri, being both a slave and a free state, had contributed to so much of the racism that we find here locally, uh, and therefore the civil rights struggle. If that... Uh, and, and indeed, it may not be able to say for certain, but uh, I'd always wondered if that might have something to do with it. What do you think? Well, you know, St. Louis is often referred to as a, a northern city mm-hmm. and a southern state. And the interesting thing about St. Louis is that it is this sort of mixture of north and south. Mm-hmm. We were a slave state mm-hmm. that stayed in the mm-hmm. Union. And I always like to point out that after the Civil War, we had only two racially restrictive laws on the books— One was that blacks and whites could not go to school together, and the other one was that blacks and whites could not marry, and also whites and Mongolians could not marry, and I always like to point out that that's the word of the Missouri legislators, not mine. But there were no other racially restrictive laws. Now, we had Jim Crow, Mm -hmm. but we we didn't necessarily have Jim Crow laws, and I think that's what makes St. Louis different from the South and maybe different from the South, uh, from the North. And I like to point out there's racism everywhere. I hope I don't offend anybody, but I always say this is a a racist city and a racist state and a racist country. And uh, my sister always likes to quote um, uh, Malcolm X, who says the South is south of Canada. (laughs) So we have a a problem in this country uh, with race and racism. We're seeing a lot of that now. I mean, this polarization is political, but it also seems to be based to a large degree on race. 
Yeah, well, it's it's troubling. I, I guess it's no um, a secret that a lot mm. of African Americans are not quite happy with mm. the present administration. We voted overwhelmingly uh, against um, uh, our current president, uh, and uh, there's a lot of angst associated mm. uh, with this administration. And uh, from an African American point of view, it, it does seem to be that there's a regression as far mm-hmm. as race relations are concerned. And that also applies to Hispanics. Absolutely. And, and others of color. Absolutely. That, yeah. Absolutely. Let, let's go back to the, the 60s once again, because okay. we, we've had on this program many times Percy Green. We yes. alluded to what he was up to. But he was also involved in some significant court cases with regard to job discrimination that he was involved in. Yeah, he had a case that went to the Supreme Court uh, where he sued McDonnell Douglas uh, for racial discrimination, and it, it, it established a very important precedent. Uh, and he, as, as Percy Green explains it, before that case, Green versus McDonnell or McDonnell versus Green, uh, before you could sue somebody and win for racial discrimination, they had to admit mm. that they were discriminating. And of course, he says, of course, that's, who's going to admit that they're discriminating? Mm. So it established rules. And of course, he always also likes to point out that, and he blames uh, Justice Scalia, uh, that uh, this, the, the, the principles that were established in Green versus McDonald have been eroded to the point that we're right, almost right back where we started mm-hmm. as far as trying to prove racial discrimination in employment. So that was a very significant case. What, how important was Bill Clay, the elder Bill Clay, to uh, the, the racial story you in know, St. Louis? I, I think Bill Clay was very important. Mm-hmm. I always like to say that uh, as far as I'm concerned, Bill Clay embodied civil rights activism in the 50s. Uh, when he first came back to St. Louis in uh, in, the, in the early 50s, he uh, took over the NAACP Youth Council and uh, started launched these uh, series of demonstrations protesting racial discrimination and hiring and employment. Uh, was quite quite the militant mm-hmm. to the point where he was basically forced out of the the NAACP because mm-hmm. of his uh, sort of aggressive uh, 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 activism. And, of course, then he went into core and was, of course, a leader of uh, that Jefferson Bank demonstration. Um, and I always like to say, you know, we think of him as a politician, but his mm-hmm. civil rights activism actually preceded his political activism and basically launched his political career. Yeah. He did a little time for the Jefferson Bank he uh, demonstration. He did. There were 19 of those leaders that were arrested. And, mm-hmm. it, and the interesting thing about this, this was probably the first time that we had those kind of arrests. In civil rights, oh, was it really? Yes, because uh-huh. when core, uh, the early core from 1947 to 1957, uh, there probably wasn't any arrest. There was no violence, uh-huh. and I think that's one of the reasons why St. Louis uh, uh, civil rights uh, activism is often overlooked. How how different were core and the NAACP during this period? Well, I think that, uh, you know, I think that the the NAACP uh, a lot of times has gotten a lot of criticism because it did focus a lot on uh, those legal cases. But those legal cases were important. But they were also involved in in, in, in direct action as well, which I think is, is, is often overlooked. Mm-hmm. But we usually think of the NAACP as being um, a less militant uh, than a group like mm-hmm. CORE. Uh, um, and I, 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 that's probably some truth in that. But I, I think those those legal cases were important as well. I mean, there's, uh, you know, there's the court of public opinion. You do need that kind of pressure mm-hmm. exerted uh, by being in the streets. But 
you got to change the laws as well, and that's what the NAACP specialized in. And then again, mentioning Percy Green, he he was a, a part of a group, and I think headed a group called Action. Was that right? Action, absolutely. Yeah. In fact, I think one of the you know we think about uh, uh, Clay being sort of forced out of the NAACP because he was a little bit too aggressive. Mm-hmm. And the same thing, uh, Percy Green wasn't forced out of court, but he decided that he wanted to continue to put that kind of direct action pressure. Uh, which the core was kind of moving away from, and he did not want to stop that. So he formed his own group, Action. Yeah. Uh, our, our time is beginning to wind down, but uh, you had mentioned earlier, and I think everyone knows that tomorrow is the anniversary of the Martin Luther King assassination. Yes. You're going to be involved in an event at the History Museum to kind of commemorate the occasion. Yes. What's going it, this, on? This is a national, <clears throat> this is a, a nationwide, in fact, it's a, a really an international event that's being organized by the National Civil Rights Museum in Memphis, where there's going to be a bell ringing. Uh, to recognize the fact that Martin Luther King was assassinated and mm-hmm. uh, uh, really uh, institutions across the nation are going to be ringing that bell at about the time that Martin Luther King wasn't assassinated, about mm-hmm. 6.02, 6.03 p.m., and that's going to be uh, one of the observances at the Missouri History Museum. We're going to be doing participating in that observance. Right. Uh, you're going to be ringing the bell? Is that, I'm is going that to be actually ringing the bell uh-huh. 39 times, uh-huh. which was, of course, Martin Luther King was 39 years old when he was assassinated. We... Uh, only have a little bit less than a minute uh, sure. left. Anything in the works uh, for the museum with regard to the subject matter we've been discussing today, the civil rights movement or well, I, race I, relations? Well, I think that this is, we realize that this is a very important topic and uh, we don't want it to end. We're going to continue to discuss these issues and keep them in the forefront of the work that we're doing. Well, given the, your background as a historian, you must be uh, very gratified that this, this whole 13-month period of the museum has uh, worked out so well. It, it absolutely is very gratifying, and I'm, I'm really uh, appreciative of uh, the St. Louis region and beyond for embracing this exhibit. And the region is uh, very, very happy that it's happened, too, obviously, with a quarter of a million people attending the, the exhibition. That's great news. Great. Mm-hmm. Glenn Moore, thank you so much for being with us. Thank keep you up for having good, me. Keep up the good work. Glenn, with the Missouri Historical Society. A reminder that the exhibition, number one in civil rights, the African-American Freedom Struggle in St. Louis, closes on April 15th. This is St. Louis on the Air on St. Louis Public Radio, 90.7 KWMU.